Welcome to Private Equity Laid Bear, the podcast. This week is going to be quite different. There will not be any guest. I'm going to be the only one talking. Uh, most specifically, I'm going to uh, play uh, the audio of a talk that I gave this week about the performance of private equity. That's a topic that I've been researching for 20 years. Typically, I've been uh, giving a message that is quite different than what we usually hear. And here, exceptionally in this talk, I'm going to start by listing all the things that I do agree with uh, the industry uh, lobbying groups and the industry consultants. And then I will move on to explain what are the things that I do not agree with. First one is, I believe that private equity is diversifying, and especially so in Europe and in the rest of the world. Now, I don't know if it's, you know, diversification you, you, you badly want, but it is diversifying. Why am I saying that? In Europe, if you look at things like the industry composition of where private equity money is going compared to industry composition of publicly listed indices, they are very different, right? Or let's say just public markets, they are very different. So you don't get access to the same companies. Rest of the world, even more so. If you want any exposure to Africa, even China, there is no way you get that with public equity. So you have only private equity. So that sort of diversification, this very big geographical diversification and even industry diversification within some regions clearly can only be achieved with private equity. Now, is it worth the cost and so on? That's another question, but it's clearly diversifying. In the US, much less so. The US has a lot of stocks that are listed, lots of companies listed, even in the tech, healthcare, et cetera. It's a lot less clear. And it's especially unclear for the larger segment of the private equity market in the US, because very, very, it looks like there's a lot of overlap with what you can find on public markets. Okay. So that's one first element. The one on Europe will come back in this talk because um, we're going to talk about that. All right. Um, a consensus that is emerging in academia, which is a bit surprising at first, is that the risk is not quite like on the textbooks. When we teach corporate finance, we have this formula from the 60s where we say, you know, if you have a levered asset, you multiply by the leverage ratio, and then the beta is, you know, getting much bigger with leverage. And private equity being levered at 66, 70% plus, the implied beta should have been above two. When we look at the data, it does not look like an asset class that behaves with a beta of two plus even if you were marketing to market. Just take the recent COVID crisis. If it would have been a better of two, it would have gone down by twice as much of the stock market. Didn't happen, even if you would have tried to mark to market. If you look at the 2008 crisis, same things. It didn't go down by twice as much of the market, didn't recover at twice as fast as the market. It is not behaving like a two times better, a two, a two better asset. So as I spend also a lot of time and research and different methods to, to, to pin it down, I usually arrive with different data, different methods at about 1.3. It seems to be the emerging consensus. The beta is more like a 1.3. It's not a huge beta of like two. Venture capital a bit more. So if you put venture capital in the mix, it will go closer to 1.5. Leverage buyout is more like 1.25. It depends a bit on what you put in the mix but it's not two times. I completely agree that parties are becoming a lot more sophisticated and informed. 
The electroshock was the financial crisis of 2008. From then on, LPs were much more on top of their games, received a lot more information, and so on and so forth. We are not there yet, but there is a lot more information and a lot better information nowadays. There has never been as good information as there is today. I still think we have a long way to go, but we have come a long way. I think everybody agrees that we have low expected returns going forward because asset prices are very high. I also agree with what Pear said last, three weeks ago, that you cannot replicate private equity with some ETFs of industry ETFs, some combination of this. Some people have tried, they have all failed. And there is a good reason for that, and I'm happy to talk about that, but you cannot replicate the private equity return with simple ETF mixes of like small value or things like that, okay? It doesn't mean this is not a good benchmark, but you cannot replicate it with ETFs that will give you these sorts of exposures. I believe you can replicate practically returns quite well, but not with these kind of tools. And that's some, a paper hopefully that will come out in a few months. Now, NAV seems to be trustable. And so it seems yeah, there is a good research by Tim Jenkinson, my colleague and, 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 and his co-authors, that shows that actually, if you look at the NAV and subsequent fees, the present value is very close to the NAV. And that matters because the NAV is usually growth of carry. So some people think that the NAV is exaggerated. Also, maybe because some practical firms will be tempted to exaggerate it. When we look at subsequent cash flows, at least in the past, it hasn't been the case. It may change in, in the future, but so far, past data tells you that NAVs are about right. And we agree also, just like Per said, that, that the, the data on fund cash flows are reasonable quality and, and, and coherent across data sets. So we had a problem in the early 2000s. We, we came over it. I think now we have good data or reasonably good data. And hopefully we also agree that the fees are about 7% a year in private equity. That's not what pension funds are reporting because they are not reporting all the fees they pay in private equity. Uh, pay actually, even to my surprise, I had a full page in his report of the Norwegian government where he gave a calculation that came exactly to that number. Because when I came up with that number for the first time, People were very upset and told, you know, said that I was like, you know, completely off. Ever since, all the people that have tried to calculate something that looks like a total expense ratio in private equity have come up with a similar number. And the emerging, it seems also to be consensual, that we are talking about 4% fixed fees and 3% carry. And that is important because if going forward you have lower expected returns and you have something like 4% fixed fees, it's a bit tricky. So what is it that makes people so upset when I show results on performance? Well, this number here, I don't know if you can see it, but I'm using the data that everybody's using called Burgess. I show you the results here voluntarily from 2006. I will explain why. I use the same measure that we've been told to use Kaplan and Shaw PME. And when I go on Burgess, and I did that very recently, I get all the private equity funds, and I'm asking for how much they gave back to how much they took. And the answer is 0.95. It means that there is 5% missing. If you take the present value, uh, uh, the PME means you have a present value. So it's in comparison to the benchmark, which is in Kaplan and Shaw. Okay, it's the S&P 500. 
So this is saying I'm taking all the private equity funds in this database that have been raised after 2006. I'm comparing it to the S&P 500. Did, gave, did they give me back more money than the S&P 500 or less? The answer is less by 5%. It's not 5% a year, right? it's 5% in total. So it's about 1% a year that's missing, right? Now, again, everybody can check this data. It's all, it's all available. And here is what then they say in reply. They say it's unfair to focus on private equity. Uh, and um, but you should focus only on private equity. You should not have real assets in there. And you should not have private debt. Okay, to call the private market funds in, in Burgess database on, on the one I just showed you. The newer argument is, oh, the S&P 500, we changed our mind. It had an exceptional run recently. So we don't want to use this as a benchmark anymore. Now, a number of you I know have been around for a while because you were very my first Inquire Europe seminar in 2004. And so I know that you've been in the industry for at least as long. And all the investment presentations in 2004, five, six, seven, eight, at the S&P 500 as a benchmark. And today, none of them. What do we use? MSCI World. Right? So people some, somehow have just changed their mind as to what is the benchmark that we should use for any asset. You can look at presentations for like gold, investing in gold in 2006, they would have the S&P 500 as a benchmark. You watch a gold presentation today, they would have MSCI World as a benchmark. Okay. And then they tell me, well, you have told us that we should use a small cap benchmark. We are using it and we find the same results. So we don't understand your problem. Okay. You also told us to look at value. We tried that and then we don't find, we find the same results. Actually, it's even worse. Um, and something important that pair said also three weeks ago, one of the important things he said, he said, you know, we increase beta and the results do not change, right? You remember that? That was very important because that's very counterintuitive. Any one of you who has done benchmarking knows that if you multiply by two a beta, right? If you use one versus two, the benchmark doubles. And so it has a massive influence on the alpha that you get. Yet Pear told you, it doesn't matter how much you move the beta, from one to two, you will get the same answer in terms of beta, uh, or in terms of alpha, sorry. That is very counterintuitive. Why is that? I will tell you why. Then um, they say I should not start in 2006. I'll come back to that. And they say that 15 years is not enough. You need to have a way longer view of the world. I'm happy to comment on that too. They asked me to stop whining about IR and stop whining about fees. All right. So first, uh, pushback. You should not have real assets and private debt. I'm, I'm sympathetic-ish for private debt, but I'm not for real assets. Basically, private equity funds that invest in natural resources have been put aside and called natural resources funds. They do private equity. They buy equity stakes in companies with leverage just happens that these companies are in the natural resources sector. Just like you have some investments that are made in, in the equity of companies with leverage that are in the airline sector, whatever. So people then take that out 
saying that's not really private equity. It's kind of like it's, it's real assets. It's not the same thing. Well, it just happens that natural resources is the worst performing sector in the US in particular over the last 15 years. So if you want to take out all the funds that are in a given sector in private equity, then please at least take them out in public equity. Take out all the people in natural resources that are on the public equity because on the public markets, because there are lots of them. Some have a coalition doesn't want to do that. They just want to take the bad performing industries in the private equity front and not in the, in the public equity front. And the consultants do that all the time. So when they give you presentations and they say, here's the performance of private equity, be very careful of how they define private equity because very often you will see, oh, we have excluded natural resources funds. We have excluded real estate funds. We have excluded private debt funds. Only the LBO or, or only LBO NVC or only LBO VC and growth. You know, so that's going to influence results. So again, I'm sympathetic about taking out private debt, but even that, one could argue. All right. Um, another thing in passing, people usually want to take out private real estate private equity from private equity. Again, we are talking about investments in companies that are like running shopping malls, companies that are running hotels and so on. So to me, I don't see why this is not normal private equity, but they call that private equity real estate. What is amazing is that then people take that out of private equity and benchmark it against the REITs. REITs are public equity invested in real estate, but they do what is called core investment strategies. This is basically fixed income. And you cannot compare private equity real estate, which is investing with leverage into Hilton hotels and the like, to REITs. And we even see academics doing that, which is like extraordinary. All right. But I'm happy to wish to grant their wishes. I'm going to take out uh, 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 all of this. And then I'm going to look only at how they define private equity funds. And I keep all the natural resources and so on in the S&P 500. So I'm going to do what they say. And then, yes, we are at one. But we are just at one. We are not talking a massive outperformance. We are talking about. 0.4% a year, 0.5% a year. It's not big, certainly not significant. All right, continuing on the criticism. This is one of the latest one. This is like, I think very interesting. They draw these sorts of things. They say, the S&P 500 had an exceptional run. We never seen such a high return for the S&P 500. So that's why nobody wants to use it anymore as a benchmark. And we need to switch to something like MSCI World. This picture by Hamilton Lane seems pretty impressive and convincing. The S&P 500, we are told, is in the 93rd percentile return ever over the last 10 years. While private equity is not as high compared to their historical average. And therefore, what you would, anyone reasonable would take out of his graph is the S&P 500 had an exceptional run over the last 10 years. Therefore, you should ignore that. And you, know, you should use another benchmark. 
and private equity is not as highly overvalued than the S&P 500, and so you should invest in the S&P in private equity. All right. Should always check all the footnotes. The footnote here is the time period from 1990 to 2020. Now, the S&P is large cap US stocks, and we are lucky. We have actually 100 years of history for large cap US stocks. So let's look at the 100 years of history of the US stock market. Here it is. This is where we are today, right here. Are we high historically? Yeah, 66 percentile. We're not that high compared to historical average of the US stock market. The last 10 years, the US stock market has been at 14% return. That's about, you know, two thirds of the time it has been below and one third of the time it has been above. So it's not that exceptional. The average US stock market return is at 12%. Okay. So when people are telling you about returns, like bear this kind of number in mind, the average stock market returns in the US over the last 100 years is 12%. One thing that is exceptional here though, is that guy. But the S&P 500 in the 2000s, that was absolutely terrible and never heard of. Notice that yes, this, the US stock market has never lost money on, on any 10 years. This is also an important argument. Sometimes people say there is not a single vintage year in private equity that has lost money. Same thing for the, for the US stock market, never lost any money over any 10 years period in 100 years of history. So what is exceptional is that the S&P 500 had terrible returns, the large cap US stocks had terrible returns over a time period that spanned 98 to 2008, basically. And the more recent period is more normal. And now that explains why when we first met people of Inquire Europe in 2004 to 2008, everybody was using the S&P 500 as a benchmark because it had terrible returns. And so gold, all these things were compared to the S&P 500 because it was very easy to beat something returning just 2% returns. Then the S&P 500 went back to the normal US stock market returns. And then, you know, people think it's too much and they change benchmark. Another thing that is important for you to know is that it is only the large cap US stock that had this downturn in 2008 and before. This is again, this is 10 years moving average. So here it means this is from the late 90s to the 2008 or so, but the large cap US stock had very bad returns. And this is why you remember these seminars at Inquire Europe and elsewhere about smart betas strategies. We don't hear about them anymore. At the time we were hearing a lot about them. Why? What was their common point? They were simply not valuating stocks and they were doing better. That's it, that was a key trick. Why was that? Because the large cap had very bad returns while all the other stocks in the US had normal rates of return. Here in gray 
is the crisp equally weighted average. This is telling you the average stock in the US. It has always been at the same level. And if you want to say, well, this is not a tradable strategy, I then picked Dimension Fund Advisor because that's the oldest passive small cap mutual fund in the US. And you see it, it tracks it pretty well. So small cap and mid cap stocks in the US didn't have this downturn here. They stayed at their long-term average of about 12% throughout. The S&P 500 and the large cap did have a big dive in the 2000s. Once you understand that, you will understand everything about the performance that people show you and the different way of spinning performance reports. Before I go give you some case studies to show you that once you know that, you know everything. One comment about, an important one, about the private equity have become global, therefore we need a global index, right? That's what people say. They say, well, you know, private equity went global, so it's a messier world. To which I reply, yes, fair enough, okay. But let's agree to separate things. Let's compare US private equity with US public equity. And let's compare rest of the world public equity with rest of the world private equity. And then the picture is quite different. If I do US against S&P 500, my pool number here is 0.98. So using again, Kaplan and Shore from 2006, et cetera, et cetera, I have less money coming back for, to, from private equity than they gave compared to the S&P 500, period. So even if we do you know, US separately, it is one-to-one. -one. Again, it's not a catastrophe, but it's one-to-one. -one. All right. What happened then? What's happening, and the reason MSCI World is, is making private equity look so good, is that MSCI World has bad returns because outside of the US, the returns have been bad on the public markets, especially in Europe, and even more so for emerging markets where the currencies have depreciated against the US dollar. If you compare emerging market private equity to public equity, you are actually one-to-one -one again. If you do MSCI emerging, emerging private equity, it's one-to-one. -one. So then, the one that is driving the entire results when you do MSCI world against private equity are the Europeans. Because it turns out that Europe public equity has been absolutely terrible in terms of returns by historical and global standards. And private equity Europe has the same returns as US private equity and US public equity. But you, private public equity Europe is the outlier. But then let's go back to what I said earlier about diversification. It turns out that private equity in Europe is very different from public equity, unlike in the US. So you need to have a much closer look at industry composition. What are the kind of companies traded in Europe? Sorry, the slide is busy. You'll be able to read it later more quietly. In terms of industries and companies, it's a lot of uh, food, large food companies, Nestle, Danone, Unilever. It's a lot of oil companies, Royal Dutch Shell, BP, Total. That's the kind of industries that are dominating all the public equity indices in Europe. 
they have nothing to do with what private equity invests into. And these industries have done badly over the last 10, 15 years. So if one wants to compare public equity to private equity, especially in Europe, you need to compare it very carefully with industry compositions and also the country compositions. It's half of the money invested in private equity in Europe that is invested in the UK. It's a quarter of the money that is invested in Scandinavia. This has nothing to do with the weights on the public markets. On the public markets, United Kingdom is just 23%. In private equity, it's twice as much. Switzerland is 15% on public equity. In private equity, three, four. So the country weights are completely different. Then the currency is different. So you cannot easily compare private equity Europe with public equity Europe. And when you do all of the world private equity like the coalition is doing with all of the world like MSCI World Index, you're comparing apples with oranges in a very, very obvious way. And if you compare, again, Europe against S&P 500, Europe private equity would be one to one. So bottom line, the jury is still out on Europe. That's why my paper on the billionaire factory was not talking about Europe. It was doing only US because only there I was quite sure that I could compare these two things quite well. But in Europe, uh, we are, the jury is out and for emerging markets, also benchmarking is extremely difficult. So it's really only in the US where we have a good picture. All right, this is kind, you can look at it later. This is kind of summarizing a bit what I said earlier about the different indices and, and, and so on. I wanna bring this notion uh, by, by showing you a paper that to me is one of the best paper ever in finance and the profession has missed it. It's a paper by people that we know quite well in Europe, at least two of them, Martin Kremers, who's Dutch and Antti Petayisto, who's Finnish. And they wrote a paper called Should Benchmarks Have Alpha? It's a very, very important paper because what this is emphasizing, especially nowadays in a world where there is a lot of passive investing, it is very important to bear in mind that there is no such a thing as a passive strategy. Every ETF, every index is an active strategy. Simply, it is automated. It's what we call a systematic trading strategy. It's not a passive strategy. S&P 500 is an active trading strategy. They have a criteria. They add some stocks, they remove stocks. They actively trade slowly, but they actively trade. It's a, it's, it's a statement they make. They decide on weights and so on. This is, this is an active trading strategy. And some indices are smartly designed and some are not. And the paper I, I would like to try to write is, and I'm, I'm, I'm having some difficulties so if some of you want to join, is to show that the index industry, which is a huge industry nowadays, is actually creating two types of indices. Some that are badly designed so that they will underperform and people will pay to use them as benchmarks because they are so bad. And some that are very well designed but will, people will pay to get an ETF on it that they will sell on the performance of. And here is an example, and this was before there was this, this, this business of index trading. 
Look at the Russell 2000, which is the most used index in presentations of private equity coalition members when they want to give you an index of mid cap. This is the alpha of the Russell 2000, minus 3% plus per year. And this was as of 2006, and it is even worse as of today. Why isn't the coalition using Russell Midcap, for example? That's another Midcap index of Russell, but that's one that's actually doing pretty well. Never used in benchmarking. That's a Midcap index from Russell. Why are we using Russell 2000? Just turns out there's a terrible performance. People use the Russell 3000 sometimes. The S&P 500, this was as of uh, uh, 2006. And here, even the S&P, the mid cap versus the small cap index have very different returns. And importantly, the mid cap index of, of, of Russell would have a very different return from the mid cap index of S&P 500. And so people can choose, they can shop for the benchmark they want for any segment. And as academics, we know if you can shop, you're going to snoop it if you're interested in an answer. If your livelihood depends on the answer, like if you're a consultant in private equity, then you're going to take the index that is looking good for you. And we need to be aware of that. So I think we need to bear that paper in mind a lot more than we have in the profession. We have tended to say, okay, here's a proxy for the S&P for the stock market US and haven't thought about it. Benchmarks have alpha, big ones. All right, case study now. Another exam question. This is from an annual report from an endowment that concluded that, you know, their private equity investments are, are, are their best performing asset class, something that you must have heard quite often. And they are very happy with their private equity investments. And this is what they report for their past 10 years, five years, and three years returns. And you can see how their private equity returns look amazing. Their conclusion is private equity is my best performing asset class. How come? Well, if you remember the kind of numbers I gave you, the 14% here in private equity that they are reporting is the same as the US stock market. The 10% here is the same as the MSCI world index. So what's happening? Asset owners, when they show you public equity versus private equity, their public equity portfolio is very close to MSCI world composition. It's a globally diversified portfolio. Therefore, their public equity investments are usually over the last 10 years closer to 10 or nine because it's a globally diversified portfolio. And their private equity portfolio is heavily tilted towards the US. And their private equity portfolio has the same return as US stocks. But if they compare these two things, they say, oh, my private equity is my best performing asset class. Well, break down your public equity between US and non-US, and you will see a different picture. So I had said that, and it just happened that the consultant, I think by mistake, did show that statistic, but didn't insist on it. And here it is. This is a report by a consultant who again advised people to invest in private equity, said this is the best performing asset class for 
asset owners, we have analyzed the returns of state pension funds in the US over the last 10 years, and private equity is the best one. US pension funds should invest in private equity. That's the consultant message. But if you look at the details, there is one table here that breaks down, again, these are realized returns by US pension funds. US stocks, average return, 15%. Private equity, average return, 14%. Why did the consultant say private equity was the best performing asset class? Because they mixed US and non-US stocks together and then said, oh, private equity is the best performing asset class. They just forgot that in one of their sub tables, they had actually made that split. And once you see the split, you see exactly that these two numbers are the same. And the private equity portfolio of US state pension funds is very, very, very US tilted. It's like 90% invested in the US. Okay, so that then shows you how people can, even though they have the same information as I do, show you very different numbers. This is about benchmark shopping. You can uh, read it uh, uh, later. I, I, I think I'm getting a bit uh, of a time. I, 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 um, maybe I, I show you a bit of, on that one. Why did I start in 2006? It's because the S&P 500 returns have changed before and after 2006. That's the reason. So if you would have compared private equity in the US to the average US stock, it doesn't matter when you start your time period, the returns are always the same. But because the S&P 500 had terrible returns up until the financial crisis and good returns afterwards, when you use the S&P 500 as a benchmark, you get a different answer before and after 2006. And so I split at 2006 to say, after 2006, it doesn't matter which benchmark you use because you toss, you will always see that private equity is about equal to public equity. Before 2006, it depends on the benchmark. If you want to say that it's S&P 500, which would be a very weird benchmark to use, then you will find out performance, strong one. And if you use a mid cap, small cap, property design index, you will find the private equity was also equal to public equity over that time period when people were promoting soft, uh, small beta and All right. Um, so the coalition does all kinds of things to uh, you know, show you a different picture. And now that you have understood what the data, underlying data are, you can see how making this kind of adjustments that the coalition is making will give a different picture. Okay, so I'm going to skip all kinds of things to keep time for the question. I just want to emphasize that there are a number of papers now that are confirming what I've been saying for basically 15 years. And it's no surprise that they, most of them are in 2020. It really is a revolution currently happening. You have a huge paper by Lerner, Mao, Shor, and Zhang that is showing, that is getting data from State Street Therefore, it is the underlying data of a lot of asset owners. And they find that private equity performs like public equity. And the, all the side vehicles, which is as much as 50% of the entire location to private equity. So here I've talked only about the main funds, but you have all kinds of separate managed account, co-investment vehicles, et cetera, right? All these buzzwords. They actually find that these side vehicles perform less well than the funds I've just shown you the performance of now. 
And even that one is about equal. You have another paper here by Begano and, and Siri Vardan that shows that fund, patient funds seem to be paying different fees in private equity. So they all have different returns. And the databases have picked up one of these returns. And it is very possible that they pick up the best one. So we need to be, we will may need to reevaluate also a bit uh, what the databases we are using exactly show in terms of returns, how they make their choices between different investors, different returns. Beef and Flynn, this is CME uh, in Canada. They show that they, they, this, is a, this is one of the largest consultant of pension funds in the world. You know them very well in Europe as well. Uh, they look at the data reported by pension funds on different asset classes, and they showed private equity did as well as public equity if you compare it with mid-cap, small-cap benchmarks and not MSCI world or whatever. Ennis paper showing that if you look at the return of US endowments, US university endowments, the returns over the last 10 years actually way below a 60-40 allocation. Why? Partly because private equity hasn't delivered and they have an international portfolio of public equity and so they are not doing very well. Inman and Shandran and McKin, et cetera, et cetera. So you have a lot of papers now. Now that people have understood the sorts of things that I'm talking about here, you have a lot of people coming up with these sorts of evidence. If you wanna know more, I've just released the third edition of my book. My website is full of information about private equity. Uh, I have a podcast series that you can listen to. Uh, I'm using class if you're a teacher. Um, and I even have an online uh, executive course that anybody can subscribe to. Bottom line, I have never and will never tell people that they should or should not invest in private equity. People do anything they want. I'm not making a statement about whether it's worth investing in it or not. I'm not making a statement that all funds are bad or they are all good. It's an average. It's how much money was taken in total, how much money was given back in total, how much was charged for it. 